Welcome to the Data Dive Podcast, a podcast where we share the stories of real-world data-driven applications in various industries, hear how some of the most innovative companies are being built, and much more. I'm your host, Abraham Cherian, the founder of Data Dive, an international youth-driven organization focused on developing data literacy among the next generation. Today, I'm excited to have Ben Epstein on the podcast. Ben majored in computer science and minored in music at Washington University in St. Louis. After college, he worked as a machine learning engineer lead for Splice Machine before being a founding engineer at Galileo, a company that builds data-centric tools to enhance the effectiveness of data science and machine learning models. Welcome to the Data Dive podcast, Ben. I'm glad to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me a little bit about your background and what sparked your interest in data science and machine learning. Yeah, so I studied machine learning, like you said. I studied computer science at Washington University. And while I was there, I was taking um, a number of different courses across kind of the gambit of computer science. Um, And my sophomore year, uh, summer, going into junior year, I ended up getting an internship uh, with Citibank. And I was originally actually supposed to be working in security, working on kind of fraud analysis and security for one of their fraud teams. And right as the summer was starting up, that company, that team actually fell through and they kind of rejected uh, interns. They were no longer taking them. And so in a very last minute scramble, they found a team for me doing fraud data science. And I'd actually never heard of data science. I hadn't taken any data science or machine learning classes. Um, but the head of that class, uh, that team, his name is Matt. He was a really, really great guy, a phenomenal boss. And he sort of let me join the summer team anyway. And I was the only intern on that team. And they were doing pretty cool machine learning using libraries like H2O and Spark for predicting fraud. And I sort of learned through that kind of team and reading documentation and articles kind of how to do machine learning in a company. What are some valuable skills that you picked up in college that has helped you with your work at Splice Machine and now Galileo? Yeah, so some of the most valuable stuff I got in college was less theoretical, at least for me specifically, less theoretical-based classes, and more classes that forced me to build projects with technologies I hadn't used in the past. Um, And so an example of that is although it has literally nothing to do with machine learning, there was a class at WashU CSC 30. It was rapid web development and prototyping. And the whole purpose of that class was to kind of show you the gambit of technology tools that exist in the space to just build applications really quickly, to develop things, to learn how to use databases, to learn how to use Linux. And they kind of threw you into the deep end and expected you to sort of figure it out. Kind of through that class, I learned how to Google things and how to approach a problem that I had never seen before. And that's sort of a pretty fundamental skill of being a software engineer. So classes forced me to do projects without too much guidance were were very valuable for me. What was the biggest adjustment from doing CS or data science related projects in college compared to actually working on solving real world problems? When you look back, do you feel there was anything you could have done differently to allow you to be more successful today? Yeah, so the two biggest things that were different that I've heard a lot of similar opinions on to myself is data and model deployment. So in college, you learn about machine learning, you learn about theory, you learn about statistics, you learn about 
the mathematical algorithms behind all of the incredible things that we're doing with machine learning today. And that's all very important. But we do not learn about data, do not learn how to aggregate data, how to mine data, how to clean data, how to analyze data. And we don't learn how to actually deploy a model. So you have a notebook, you've built, you know, you've built ResNet 50 from scratch, for example, obviously you haven't, but say you had, there, there's no class, at least when I was learning, on actually how to take that model and make it exist outside of your Jupyter notebook to host it in an environment where you can use it or someone else can use it, or you can build a web app around it. So handling the data and deploying the model, which is kind of funny, it's the first piece, the thing before machine learning starts and the thing right after machine learning ends. Those are, those are the two biggest uh, adjustments. Could you discuss your work as a machine learning lead at Splice Machine and the ML manager platform that you owned and worked on? Yeah, so that's sort of where I started learning about industry machine learning, actually how machine learning works when you're applying it to a company, to an actual business problem. So ML Manager is the product that I worked on really closely with a colleague of mine, Amrit, and I ended up leading that product as well as eventually a feature store that, that we built. And the goal of that product generally was to make it really, really fast and easy for data scientists who didn't have infrastructure knowledge to actually take the machine learning model that they built to track it and actually to deploy it. So Splice Machine under the hood was a database uh, and it was a really cool database uh, in theory on paper. It had a lot of really cool um, pieces of technology that enabled it to do things that a lot of other databases couldn't do. Um, for example, analyze um, lots of data, something called OLAP um, analytic queries and to run transactional applications, which is to say, um, to run really, really fast database lookups. So for example, the difference between those two being you might want the average amount spent by all of your customers for the last month and a half. That could be billions of rows of data. That's analytic. And transactional being, I want all of the information about customer seven in my database. They're two kind of opposing technologies that people have been trying to combine. Um, Splice Machine was trying to combine those two into one system. And we built a mechanism to actually take models that were built, an example, Keras or Scikit-Learn or Spark or H2O and deploy them inside of the database. So that was kind of the core premise value add of, of uh, ML Manager at Splice Machine. What made you decide to join Galileo as a founding engineer? Yeah, so um, when I was looking for a new job after Splice Machine and actually a lot of the work I was doing um, towards the end of my time at Splice Machine was on something that became really popular while we were working on it as well called a feature store. A lot of companies started coming out with feature stores for people who don't know. A feature store is a tool that data scientists and engineers will use before the modeling phase. And the idea is it's a set of APIs and contracts that allow you to define what makes up a feature. Um, and so really simply put, you might have a feature that is the last seven days of spend for every customer in your account, you may run a store and your database may have every transaction that every customer spent. If you're trying to figure out what this customer might want to buy next or what advertisement to show to that customer, it might be really valuable to know the categories that they're spending the most in on a weekly basis, on a bi-weekly basis, on a yearly basis, things like that. A feature store, a good feature store, lets you define those features and lets you define the code that creates those features in a very managed way. You could think about it as kind of a GitHub-esque tool, but for <laughs> defining data as opposed to defining code or defining infrastructure, for example. 
And so we were working on that feature store. And the more that I worked on it with my team, the more that I realized that kind of started researching the space and talking to engineers, I realized that, and a lot of people did, that data management, data wrangling, like I talked about earlier, is a really major part of machine learning. That's the thing that school doesn't really teach you that often. If you're a data scientist at a company, it is very likely that 70% of your time might literally be spent wrangling data, cleaning data, finding trends in data, taking out null values in data, all of that stuff. Um, So the goal of the feature store is to provide that in a very structured way. As I started trying to sell our feature store to clients, a big question that they would get is how do you use the feature store for unstructured data? How do you use it for an image? How do you use it for audio or for text? And there really wasn't a good answer for that. And there still isn't really a good answer for that. And the key point of that is that it's, it's un- feature stores are meant for structured data. You can have the amount somebody spent, but you can't, for example, have a feature about the pixels of your image. That doesn't mean anything. And in deep learning, when you're building neural networks to manage unstructured data, like audio, text, and images, the features are actually the, these things called embeddings. And these embeddings are vectors of, of some set size, of some set dimensionality. Um, and that is actually what the model looks at to interpret the data. So if your dimension is, for example, 500, every image or every input sentence that you have, the model generates a length 500 array of floats. And that represents the, the actual input. And that's what the model trains on. And that actually is the feature. That, that, that is the feature to that, um, to that model for that input. And so as I started looking into this, I was looking for a company that was focusing on that. I thought, this is a really interesting problem. I don't really know how to solve it, but I'm sure it can be solved. Uh, and as I started talking to kind of people in my network and people that I looked up to, one of those people, his name was Atten. He was one of the leads at Uber's Michelangelo. Um, and I was talking to him and he said to me, we're building a tool that's focused on data quality. We just started, you know, would, would you like to join us? And as I learned more about it, I realized that that's exactly what they were doing. They were focusing on understanding how models interpret data specifically for unstructured data. That got me super excited. Um, and so I jumped at that opportunity. Whenever more features are added to a data science or machine learning model, This usually results in enhanced training complexity and decreases the generalizability of that model. What do you think are the ways that these models can be developed to find a happy medium between the generalizability, the training complexity, and the number of features? Yeah, so that's a very, I think, domain-specific question, but it's a good question. But I do think it it really comes down to the problem you're trying to solve and the model that you're using. Um, Right now, where I am, I'm very focused like on that unstructured data space, but I think that this question could apply potentially a little bit more specifically or a little, it might be a little bit easy, more easily answered in structured data as you're trying to, for example, define a person and maybe predict what ads to give to that person. You can imagine just continuously coming up with more attributes that that person might have. We were talking earlier about um, how much they spent in the last seven days. Well, you might want how much they spent in the last seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, up to a thousand days. And then you have a thousand features and, and those features might not really be that useful because they all are probably very dependent on each other. Um, and, and so one technique in machine learning is to create independence between your features um, to make sure that you're not generating noise and tricking the model into finding patterns that don't exist. Um, but I think broadly speaking, the 
best way to find that happy medium is to follow really good practices of testing um, for models. Uh, you can take out your data right in the beginning, reserve a test set that is very, very well um, representative of the entire data set that you have. Um, maybe, maybe a random split works, maybe it doesn't depending on your data set, but taking out a test set that you don't test after each iteration of training. Um, you know, you create test and validation or train and validation and your test set stays all the way at the end, all the way into the last step. And then you can actually see if your model um, is, is generalizing truly on production data. Um, another step is sometimes you think it does and it doesn't. And that's where model monitoring uh, becomes really important. There's a lot of companies that do monitoring really well and in really interesting and unique ways. And they look at different drifts and different divergent statistics and, and algorithms. But I think it's just important that you continuously kind of compare the distribution of the data that your model is seeing from the distribution of data that's, that's in production that your model is actually making inferences on. What are some of the ways that Galileo finds noisy training data in their data sets? Yeah, so this is something that is kind of specific to Galileo, and I don't think that we yet talk about the very technical specifics of it, but something that we started with when we were, when actually the ML research team, not me, was looking into how to surface both noisy and mislabeled samples, samples that are labeled one thing, but in, in truth are actually a different class, is we started by looking at model certainty. When models make predictions, they have a certainty about those predictions, you know, how sure they are that the thing they predicted is truly the thing that they're predicting. You can imagine, um, is this Amazon review positive or negative? The model might predict negative, but it may only predict negative with 62%. That's not particularly certain versus them predicting with 95%. Something basic that a lot of teams will do in, in unstructured data or in structured as well, uh, is they'll rank order their predictions by certainty. And they'll look at the samples that the model is least certain about. And what that tells you is potentially, oops, the sample is mislabeled, potentially it was just hard for the model and you need more samples similar to that sample. Or it might tell you that your model is actually not that good. But there's been a lot of work and research in this space by teams at Stanford, by teams at MIT, by really top level um, labs doing research on also NLP, um, which is where we're focusing. And they've come up with um, a lot of other techniques to find those noisy samples in a much more robust way. They look at certainty as an aspect of it, but that's not the whole gambit. They, they do a lot um, to actually be more confident uh, and more robust in what is a, defined as a noisy sample. And so our research team worked with those teams and, and read those research papers, implemented those algorithms, and we sort of built on top of those algorithms and built um, some really cool techniques for, for surfacing those. For example, there are some public data sets out there, one of them being an Amazon Polarity data set. It's a, it's a pretty large NLP data set. It's, it's um, I think, 3.6-ish million samples. And we trained um, a pretty standard transform model on that and logged all that data through our system. And right at the top of the data set, we found hundreds, if, if not, I don't want to speak incorrectly, but it could have been thousands of mislabeled samples um, that were actually labeled negative or positive and were the opposite. But it, it was definitely based in the public research that's available. So sort of the research that was done at Stanford and MIT and some of those like top schools were sort of as a launch pad for Galileo. And that's kind of how you guys started building your, uh, your tools. 
Yeah, yeah. It was um, definitely a launch pad. I think that we were really inspired by that work. And our goal was to take, there, there's often a big chasm between what academia is doing in research and what actually gets put out in production. Our team has a lot of production engineers, but we also have a lot of research engineers. And one of our goals was to sort of bridge that gap as much as we could. So we really focus on A, using those research papers and referencing them, but B, working as we can, as it's, as it's available with those research teams to, to actually kind of come up with new algorithms with them and help them productionize those things quicker. Could you explain the framework behind Galileo's data-centric methods used to improve data quality? Yeah, so data-centric is, is certainly a term that's a little overloaded today. A lot of companies say the word data-centric um, and they mean different things. We are not fully model agnostic, which is to say your model isn't irrelevant. Of course, the model itself is relevant to the performance of that model, right, to the data that the model is being trained on. And so one example of that is when we analyze and surface insights through the embeddings of the text, those embeddings are embeddings that are generated by the model. So it's not randomly sourced embeddings from a pre-trained model. It is your model. And the purpose of that is to see what the model sees in your data. Like, for example, we visualize embeddings in our UI. And what those embeddings are showing is sort of the inside of the model's brain. Each sample is shown on a 2D graph and it says, okay, this is where your model thinks this data point is. The, sim the samples near that sample, the points on the graph near that point are samples that your model thinks are similar to it. So you should analyze those and see, is it right? Are they similar? Has your model built a mental map that is actually representative of the data that you're feeding it? But the reason that we say that we're data centric and that I believe that we are data centric is that within the model, we're focusing on the data it's seeing. We're not focusing on things like hyperparameters, like the weights and biases of the neural network, the hidden layers, activation functions, all of that stuff. You can log those things, but that's not our focus. Our focus is to find important and relevant subsets of your data, subsets of your data that your model is looking at that are wrong. They're wrong either because the model doesn't understand them. Maybe you need to add more data that's similar. They're, they're mislabeled. Your model understands it and your model is getting it right, but your labeler got it wrong. Or specific subsets that your model is just doing poorly on. You may find a cluster of points in your embedding graph, just a cluster of points that are labeled in a certain way. And we allow you to, for example, color those by the quality of the data based on kind of those internal calculations that we talked about a second ago. You may see a lot of red points somewhere. You could circle those red points and you can see all of the insights for those red points. What's your F1 score? Not on the whole data set, that's kind of useless, broadly speaking. What is your F1 score on this particular subset? What's the data error potential on this subset? What is your model thinking? What are similar samples to this subset? So it's all about introspecting and analyzing the data, making fast changes to the data instead of making changes to the model. This is sort of in line with Andrew Ng's definition, where he just had his big data-centric workshop competition. And the idea, which I think makes it kind of clear what data-centricity means, is users were given a data set of images and a model that was pre-trained. And they had to get the best F1 score in that model, or I don't exactly know the metric, but some, some performance metric. But they were only the people competing were only allowed to change the data. They weren't allowed to change anything about the model. That's sort of the fundamental premise of what data centricity means. 
What are some of your favorite data science or machine learning tools that you use for your work? That's a fun question. So I, to be clear, I'm a platform engineer. I am not on the machine learning research team, but obviously I, I do things in machine learning all the time. And I guess I hadn't worked with true machine learning researchers before this job. Uh, and it's it's been unbelievably cool to do so. I've learned an incredible amount. I have gained a very new love and appreciation for NumPy. I used to think pandas was all that. I now think, I mean, they're not the same, but NumPy is way cooler than I thought that it was. But the tool that I've been using the most, and this might be a little bit more machine learning production engineer versus machine learning research engineer, but nonetheless, it's a tool called VAEX, V-A-E-X. Uh, it's an open source project. And what they focus on is operating on data frames that are too big to fit in memory and doing so, A, in a really seamless, easy way, but B, on your machine without a cluster unbelievably quickly. They write everything in C++, so it's super fast. And what this allows you to do is if once you figure out kind of how to use the tool, if you have something that you're writing, for example, in NumPy or in Pandas, and you want to apply it to a data frame that just can't fit in memory. For example, I have a data set that I've been playing around with that's, I think, 700 gigabytes. Um, it's just kind of sitting on my machine. You can't load a 700 gigabyte Pandas data frame. Anybody can try, they'll crash the computer. But what you can do is this technique, it's really cool, called memory mapping. Certain data formats support a concept called memory mapping. And what that means is you can map, you can traverse through this data set while it stays on disk instead of bringing it into memory. You can bring in chunks of memory at a time because the data is stored contiguously on your system. So you can look at, for example, very simply speaking, kind of um, taking it up a level of, of abstraction, you can look at the first 50 rows of data, do something, and then look at the next 50 rows of data and continuously batch through that as you go. Pandas has kind of a sort of a way to do this. NumPy also sort of has a way to do this, but they're not like easy. They're not abstracted. Vix takes that concept and gives you a data frame that you think is in memory. It treats it as if the whole thing is in memory, but it does all of this incredible lazy magic, lazy execution magic to apply it to as big of a data set that can fit on your machine. And it does it at billions of rows per second. That is the tool that powers almost everything we do at Galileo. And it's been one of the most fun projects I've ever worked with. What are some of the most challenging types of data sets Galileo has had to use? And how did you improve the quality of that data set? Yeah, so one of the things that we wanted to focus on when we were building the tool was to make sure that we weren't only using data sets that are used in research. That can lead you into a trap of thinking that you're making really great progress, but maybe that progress only applies to the data set that you're looking at and not to a broad spectrum of data sets. Um, we have a pretty small team, so we're obviously limited in capacity, but we make a really salient effort to run our algorithms and try all of our techniques across as many data sets as, as we can possibly support. And we've put a lot of work and infrastructure in place to kind of automate that process. But we have a set of maybe a dozen or, or almost a dozen data sets that we play around with. I can't really speak to the most challenging data set from a machine learning research perspective because I wasn't doing that research, but certainly the most challenging data set from a production perspective was um, this data set called Amazon Polarity. And the reason for that is the data set is, is pretty huge. It's 3.6 million samples of text, which 
for NLP data sets is pretty large. Most NLP data sets we've seen are below you know, 50,000 rows. So 3.6 million is pretty large. And the model that we often train with is a model that generates embeddings that are vectors of 768 dimension, which is to say every single text input generates an array, a NumPy array of 768 floats. So 3.6 million rows times 768 floats is a very large amount of data. And so logging that data and generating insights for a UI, which have to be really quick in the orders of millisecond, um, was a really big challenge for us. It was an infrastructure challenge. It was a UX challenge. How do we make this happen um, in a way that feels instant for the user? And if we can't, what do we do about that? How can we optimize every single line of our codes and not skip out on anything? From my perspective, that was the hardest and, and, and most fun kind of part to work on. Um, I wish I could speak to the ML research side of what was technically the hardest, but unfortunately I can't. You've stated how valuable you think data management and features are for data science or machine learning models. What do you feel people can do to improve their skills in the data management realm or improving at selecting good features for their models? Sure, yeah, so that, I would say broadly speaking, that's a question of structured data. That's obviously not always true, but often when you talk about generating features and coming up with new ideas for, for things to feed into a model, it's, it's often in the structured data world. Um, I think that that space is growing a lot, but it's not as robust as the model-centric space just because it came first. It was sort of an evolution. It's much easier to say what you can do to get better at your modeling techniques, <laughs> your data techniques. I think that one thing you could do is, is follow Andrew Ng. He's sort of the leader of this space. From, a, from He's the thought leader of this space. So he really talks about this. You could enter into his competition or I think his competition is already over. You, if you wanted to just get hands-on practice, you could look at the competition, the rules, and, and try to do it yourself. Try to beat the person who came up with the best uh, solution. The guy, person who won, um, I don't remember the name of that person, but I read through their Medium article and the techniques that they uh, applied to, to win this competition. And it was incredibly interesting. We actually had a lot of, um, funnily enough, we had a lot of parallels with what we do for our product and what he did for the competition, which was really cool. But he wrote a great Medium article. You could probably find it by searching, um, you know, how I won Andrew data-centric competition. It's on Medium. And so following things like that, um, joining Andrew competition, um, I think are the best ways right now. Learning about a feature store is a really good way to learn how data management works in industry. Um, an open source feature store is called Feast. So people can definitely go out and try Feast, contribute to Feast. It's an open source project. They definitely are open to, to community contributors. I think generally speaking, the best way to learn anything in computer science is to build a project. So try it yourself, you know, go and build, you know, do the Boston, I think it's the Boston housing data set project, but only let yourself use a linear regression model and come up with as many features as you can to, to make that model as good as possible. What are some of the largest and maybe most unexpected challenges you have faced with Galileo? And how did you and your team address these issues? Yeah, I think that probably the biggest challenge we, we face consistently is scale. We, like I said, use Vakes to handle a lot of our scale issues. But nonetheless, data sets get really large. And a big difference between data centricity and model centricity when you're kind of tracking your experiments and your runs in modeling 
the model centricity focuses on really lightweight metadata, model parameters, neural network, uh, hidden layers, things like that, number of trees in a forest. But data centricity focuses on the data and the data gets really, really large. And so figuring out how to build a system that is scalable, can handle loads of data and can derive insights quickly, sort of you typically only get to choose two of those three things but we want all three of those things, which makes it a fun engineering challenge. So that's, that's usually the biggest challenge that we face. And I think that the way that we get around that is A, through memory mapping. We really focus on memory mapping um, for all of our data sets. And I mean, for all of our, everything that we do, nothing's ever really brought into memory except for the subset at the time. And we focus on using tools like Kubernetes, for example, to scale our system horizontally, our whole stack, is based in Kubernetes, um, and that allows us to scale very dynamically and work with really interesting and new projects. For example, distributed block stores, which are tools that kind of abstract the idea of a file system away. And as you expand the number of, for example, um, if you're running an API in Kubernetes, which is to say you have a service that exposes an endpoint, you might want to add more of those as more people are requesting information. Um, a distributed block store if implemented properly, will allow you to duplicate the files that are in every single one of those servers. So one of them looks down and it sees, this is my file system. It adds a new one. That new one gets to see the same file system and it remains consistent. Tools like that allow us to memory map really effectively. And they're really interesting Kubernetes problems um, that we get to work on. So that's usually the biggest issue that we face. What ways do you see Galileo expanding in the future? And are there any areas in specific you're especially excited to see expansion in? Yeah, so we focused on text classification and multi-label classification. That's sort of what we, that's our bread and butter right now. Some really interesting things that we're going to expand into in the near term are things like NER, which is named entity recognition. That is another form of NLP but you're not making predictions on the full sentence in terms of like sentiment, for example. You're making predictions on individual tokens within that sentence, individual words or set of words. And the use cases of that are are too broad to describe in a single sentence, but it's really interesting. I'm learning all about it for the first time now um, with our ML research team. That's a super interesting problem, both from a use case perspective, the number of people doing that is huge. And also from an engineering perspective, because the amount of data explodes because you're not looking at data on a sentence level, you're looking at data on a word level. So that is enormous. <laughs> it's really exciting. So that I'm excited to see us work on. And then in the long term, things I'm really excited to see are um, movements into images and into audio. Audio particularly, um, that's always been really fascinating to me and not something I've gotten to learn much about, but I've always wanted to play around with. So I'm stoked to have brilliant researchers on my team teaching me everything I need to know about audio um, and machine learning. And then outside of that, um, something else we're working on is right now we really focus on exploratory data analysis, which is to say you've trained your model, all your data is here, go start looking into it, go start poking around, finding problems. But there's a whole other side to the workflow of a machine learning engineer. Once you find those problems, You want to fix those problems. You want to train a new model. You might want to deploy that model and compare the production data to the training data. So there's another side of the workflow that we haven't really touched yet, which I'm super stoked to look at. It's very cool in my head 
to say, this is the embedding space of your training data. This is what your model sees when it looks at your data for training. Here's what your model sees when it looks at your data in production. Lay one on top of the other. And what is it, what is it missing? Where are things not lining up correctly? That's something that we're starting now. And I'm really, really excited to, to get into that. What is some advice you would give yourself five years ago, career-related or otherwise? Uh, <laughs> so many things. Don't get a minor in music, get a major in music. But putting that one aside, code so much more than I was coding. Classes are really cool. Classes are exciting to teach you theory. They're not the same as industry. Go find an open source project that is popular, that excites you, and contribute to it. Does not matter how small. That's still valuable. I still contribute to projects that I think are cool as often as I can. It's left often than it used to be, but as often as I can. Um, a popular project is, uh, for example, MLflow. They, they do tracking for model experimentation, but they're model-centric. Go, go contribute to that project or go contribute to Apache Spark if you want to work on really big data or go contribute to PyTorch if you're trying to become a machine learning researcher. Imagine a, how much you would learn by digging into the internals of PyTorch, but B, how cool it's going to be when you have a badge on your GitHub profile that says that you contributed to PyTorch. That's so cool. So I would say build as much as you can. You have an idea, you think it's stupid, doesn't matter, go build it. Maybe it's stupid, maybe it's not, it doesn't matter. It's just experience. It's just something that's fun, especially if you're trying to work for startups. Something that's really common is that startup um, engineers will ask you for your GitHub profile. So they can look at code that you've written. They can see your code styles. So if you're going to build a project, follow good formatting, follow PEP8. If you're writing Python, use Black and MyPy um, and iSort and follow those cookie cutter best standards. And yeah, just, just contribute to projects that you think are fun. I think that's the, I wish I did that earlier. Thank you so much for coming on to the Data Dive podcast, Ben. I loved hearing your journey into the data science and machine learning fields and your work at Splice Machine and now Galileo. If you like this podcast, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for more Data Dive podcast episodes like this one. Thanks so much for having me.